power is at the heart of leadership. Without it, nothing important in the world happens. It's central to our ability to influence as a leader, so we need to find and use our power well. Today, I'm talking to someone who can really help us with how we do that. Hi, I'm Penny DeVonk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why grit in the oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today. The trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit in the oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise, and tune into being the best leader you can be. It's my real pleasure to be joined by Deborah Grunfeld today on the line from San Francisco, a leading social psychologist and the Joseph McDonald Professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Her research has been featured in many scholarly journals, as well as the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune. Deborah co-directs the executive program for women leaders at Stanford and teaches courses on power and leadership globally. She sits on the boards of the LeanIn.org Foundation and Stanford Center for the Advancement of Women's Leadership. And she has a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois. Deborah, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I have long loved your work, Deborah, and you have a new book out called Acting with Power, Why We Are More Powerful Than We Believe. So I guess if we start there, why are we more powerful than we believe? Well, it's such a fascinating thing um, to look at the human relationship to power. It's a lot more complicated than people tend to think. But um, I think we can just start with acknowledging that um, everyone feels powerless, even when they're not, and that there was a time when I started doing research on power that um, I, I thought it was just me who felt this way, that somehow I was not in as much control of my outcomes or other people's outcomes as I should be for some reason. And there were times that I thought, oh, it's because I'm a woman or it has to do with my, you know, my, my dad was a Holocaust survivor. I had all kinds of explanations that I think mm-hmm. everyone is like this. What I've learned in my research and also in teaching classes on acting with power is that actually Everyone feels this way, um, even the people who we look at and see as kind of icons of, of what it looks like to be a powerful person. We have this sense of ourselves as somehow inadequate. So that's, that's a kind of a separate issue. And if you look at what power is, so I'm just going to give you a brief definition because I think that's important. Um, yeah. Power is actually um, a resource that comes out of relationships. And whenever anyone we um, have a relationship with is dependent on us for things that are important to them. We have power in that relationship, whether we can feel it or not. Okay. So what happens often in life, I find, is that people who have power are not actually in touch with that reality. Our power defines who we are to other people. So it affects other people in a much more direct and impactful way than it affects us in our sense of ourselves. So We often walk around with a sense of our inadequacies and all the things that we can't control. We worry that we're, you know, we worry about the things we don't know. We worry about the things we can't control. Mm -hmm. But to other people, we often are the person who holds all the cards. 
And I think it's very important for all of us to close that gap between our private, you know, kind of authentic sense of ourselves um, and social reality, which is that other people need us and we have opportunities to affect them in, in both positive and negative ways. And we lose track of those opportunities if we can't internalize, you know, that social reality. It's really interesting. So how can we be more aware of our power and our ability to, to influence and impact? I, mean, I think there are a number of ways to think about it. The most important thing from my perspective is to recognize that power and status and authority um, come with the roles, <clears throat> the roles we play in life. They're not things that we carry around on our person. And so when we can start to see ourselves, not just as, you know, people who are trying to be ourselves, but as actors, you know, playing roles in the world, um, we can start to internalize how other people see us. And I think that's really the first step is to, to learn how to engage in that um, perspective taking process to recognize that we each of us is playing an important part in someone else's story, but we don't often think of ourselves um, in yeah. the world in that way. Very interesting. And I guess in terms of roles, then our role as a leader uh, comes with an expectation that our power, status, and authority is wrapped up pretty solidly with our leadership power. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the really interesting things about leadership. And I've spoken with so many leaders about this, and it's true for women and men. You know, when we are in a leadership position, people tend to give us the benefit of the doubt. So so they'll project power, status, and authority mm -hmm. onto us that we may not realize we have. And I think, you know, we often come into these situations thinking, I have to reinforce my strength. I have to make sure that people are going to do what I say, and I have to make sure that I prove that I'm competent. But actually, because we're in a role and because people need to feel secure in our leadership, they'll often project those things right. um, onto us. So we don't have, really have to prove anything. We have to, you know, we, we can start by, by showing them caring, kindness and respect, because the role is taking care of a lot of those other things for us. Very interesting. Just the position and the, and the status that comes with that role. Yeah. Well, so what are some of the myths about power? There's so many things we get wrong about power. Let me just think of mm -hmm. where, where is the best place to start. I mean, I think one of the most important myths, I think, um, is that, you know, especially in kind of Western um, individualistic cultures, we tend to think of power as a resource for, per, for our own personal consumption. We think of it as... Um, you know, it's a personal attribute, it's an accomplishment or an achievement, it's something that, you know, we can earn or we can take from other people. And we tend to think of power and status as um, like a, a verdict on, on, on a, or a measure of our own self-worth. Uh-huh, yeah. But if you look at power, you know, <clears throat> kind of out in the world, so if, if we can kind of get outside of our own heads for a moment and imagine ourselves kind of looking down on the world, what you can see about power is that power is a, is a part of group life. It's not an individual attribute. Nobody has power in the absence of other people. And the reason that groups organize themselves hierarchically and, and you know, give some people more power than others is because 
power is a resource for protecting groups and advancing group causes. It's not just yeah. a, a resource for, you know, for advancing self-interest. Of course, it can be used that way. And, and many people would argue that that is, you know, part of the purpose, sort of evolutionarily speaking. But the most important thing, I think, to recognize, and this is very useful, I think, for people who are ambivalent about power or uncomfortable with the idea of having or wielding power, is that um, power is a responsibility. It's part of group life. And the purpose of power, or what power is for, actually, is to take care of other people. Mm. Um, and for me, that changes everything. It makes it very easy for me to say, oh, well, then why shouldn't I have more? <laughs> why yes. shouldn't I have more? And why shouldn't I use it um, without yeah. apologizing? Because it's yeah. my responsibility when I'm in that, that position. It's a really um, very powerful uh, mindset shift for a lot of people. As you say, it's a resource that comes out of relationships. But it's about advancing group causes and it's a responsibility because you mentioned before some people can be deeply ambivalent about power. Certainly a number of the women executives I work with, you know, think about wielding power, feel maybe that power is corrupting and scary. How do you see power and gender playing out? I mean, this is such an interesting topic too. So, um, you know, one of the really interesting things that I think your listeners might find uh, interesting is that you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to both the kind of anecdotal reality that so many women experience, but also research showing that men tend to be elevated into positions of power more readily than women do. So we know often when men and women are in competition for a position of power that men will have the advantage for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that people don't know is that when you look at the effectiveness ratings, leadership effectiveness ratings across all kinds of industries and all kinds of organizations, mm -hmm. women tend to have the advantage, actually. So w women are often, um, often receive higher effectiveness ratings across the board than men do. And um, a lot of women don't know that. So, so part of what I think that means is that we have ambivalence about power, but there's something about that orientation that ends up serving us very well, you know? So it's, it's fine to be ambivalent. It's fine to recognize that you have mixed feelings. I think part of what that is an indication of is that we recognize that power comes with responsibilities and that there are very high expectations and many ways to fail, but this is exactly the quality that leads people to use power in responsible ways. I should yeah. also tell you that the research on power, I think is, very should be taken as a very encouraging sign for women and something that the rest of the world should know about, which is that if you look at um, male and female professionals who, um, who, have, who are motivated by power, who are interested in leadership, who um, you know, seek out high power roles in the mm -hmm. world, what you also find is that a very strong need for power is associated with a quick rise and um, scandals for men, but that's not the case for women, actually. So, and, and the explanation for this in the, in the research is that, you know, one of the, I guess, advantages, we sometimes think of it as a disadvantage. I think of it as a source of competitive advantage for women is yeah. that we're, we're socialized and raised as girls and women to put others first. Mm -hmm. And um, we tend to think that this holds us back. And I think when it comes to power, it may mean that we don't rise as quickly, 
But what it also means is that we are um, better equipped actually on average to use the power that's invested in us in ways that advance group causes and they're more responsible and we're less prone to scandals than men. So all of those things I think should should be, you know, does bode very well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's if, if you're interested in putting people in positions of power who are going to use that resource responsibly, women are an excellent bet. That's fantastic. So, and as you say, once people get over the notion or look through the lens of power being corrupting or wielding, how does, you know, a lot of the conversations I have with women are are being deliberate and intentional with exercising your power, Um, but often that gets in the way with them thinking, oh, but that doesn't therefore feel authentic. How do you reconcile that? How do we become skillful in exercising our power and still feel authentic. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, it's a process. Um, I, I guess there are a couple, you know, I, I have strong feelings about this. There are a couple things I can share. So I think one is that, um, you know, our sense of our own authenticity is a conversation we have with ourselves. Mm. Um, it doesn't really have to do with with anybody else. And our authentic selves are often um, our most vulnerable selves. They're the parts of ourselves that we feel need the most protection. Um, and sometimes our authentic impulses and instincts lead us to do the right thing, but oftentimes they don't actually. So mm-hmm. it, it always feels more comfortable to feel that you're being true to yourself, but I'm not sure that it always serves other people as well as I think conventional wisdom would suggest. Mm-hmm. I'm much more an advocate when thinking about using power of trying to grow into your most responsible self, kind of bridging the gap between what feels natural, what's most familiar, the habits and skills and ways of reacting that we've developed, you know, since childhood. Yeah. They were often coping strategies for dealing with what we faced in our families that don't necessarily serve other people in the roles that we occupy as adults. So for me, the key really is to 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 find a way to grow into something bigger than what feels mm-hmm. authentic to you. Um, and, you know, it always feels a little bit unnatural. I think what we find often is that the first time you um, you show up in a powerful role and, and do something you've never done before, it feels inauthentic. But it's often just unfamiliar. And once you've done yeah. it, you realize, well, Nobody else did that. That was me. I found a way to show up and do it. And, you know, the actions that we take in the world inform how we see ourselves. So yeah. it's important to realize, again, you know, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a myth in the way we think about behavior that somehow our actions should reflect who we are in some true way, but our actions also inform who we are. Mm-hmm. That's part of what it means to grow and to be resilient and to, you know, whenever we're developing these new skills, we, the first time you do something, it's something you've never done before. It yeah. feels like an out of body experience. Naturally. Yeah. yeah. Of course not. And then at some point you realize, oh, you know what, actually, uh, I didn't know that I could do that, but, but I can, and I can, and I can find a way to do it. That feels authentic. I should say also that this is kind of an important thing for people to get about the book. You know, some people are turned off by the idea of of acting or thinking of yourself as an actor. Mm. But I should say that, you know, professional actors are never 
faking it either. I mean, what, what they do is they, they internalize their, the circumstances of the character that they're playing, and then they find a way to connect personally with those circumstances. And I think mm-hmm. this is what we all do in leadership roles. So this is why you could see, you know, a Shakespeare play performed many times. And the dialogue is always the same. The plot is always the same. The characters are always the same. But the drama is not the same. Mm-hmm. Because the each performance actor, is different. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Each actor connects to those circumstances in a very personal way. And so they're reading, you know, they're delivering lines that were scripted for them. That's not authentic. But the meaning that those lines have for them is absolutely true. I mean, that's that's what good acting looks like. It's, mm-hmm. it's never faking it. It's never pretending to be someone you're not. It's it's finding a way to truthfully live in a set of circumstances that um, that aren't your own. Yeah, and I think really that's good for the rest of us in our world. Yeah. Yeah. And great advice around embracing something that might feel uncomfortable because that's what learning is about and that's and right. getting some sort of sense that uh, it you know getting comfortable with our discomfort knowing that that's part of part of learning and not going to a place of I'm therefore inauthentic which often just has us retreating to the familiar and not learning that's right. yeah that's yep. fantastic. Yep. So your your work around uh, body language, um, many people will be familiar with playing high and playing low, Deborah, to exercise your authority, which sort mm-hmm. of says you've got to accurately assess your situation and then you can deploy body language as a tool to make the impact you need. So again, being intentional, being skillful, being really aware of your strategic impact, what sort of other approaches might you outline in your book? There are many, you know, I think um, I, I have drawn a lot from, from, you know, the techniques that actors use. And of course, body language is one of the very first things that they learn. Mm-hmm. Actors focus on action and the words yeah. are given. So, you know, the meaning all comes from what they're doing with their bodies. But there's so many other things that I've learned from working with professional actors that I use every day in my professional life. And I hope, you know, the listeners to the podcast and readers of the book will also find helpful one of the simplest things really, I think, is just to pay closer attention to your attention and where you allow your imagination to go. So, um, you know, we have a tendency often to pay a lot of attention to our internal drama, you know, how we feel, our fears, our anxieties, our need for respect and, um, and admiration from other people. And, um, you know, in our fear of failing when we're going into a high Mm -hmm. stakes situation. And one of the most useful things I think any of us can do is learn to train our attention onto the other people in the scene. So one of the first things that I've learned taking acting classes is, you know, an actor gets on stage and has to deal with all that self-conscious energy that that we're all dealing with as people. Mm -hmm. Um, They practice visually focusing and mentally focusing on the other people in the scene and on what they're doing. But in part, what this allows you to do is if you're completely absorbed with what other people are doing, how other people are feeling, really listening to what other people say so that you can respond authentically to what they're giving you, there are no resources left to wonder how you're doing. 
And it yeah. takes all of that anxiety away. You know, the students in my classes will often say oh, they're, they're terrified to get up and perform a scene. None of them are professional actors. Some of them have theater backgrounds, but many of them don't. They're terrified going into these situations. And when they're able to use that technique of staying completely focused on the other person in the scene and on the action that's being played out, they'll say the audience disappeared. I didn't mm-hmm. even, I, I wasn't even aware that I was being evaluated and that whole idea of feeling inauthentic or wondering if you're doing something right, it just completely evaporates. So, so I think this is very, very important, you know, not just for dealing with the self-conscious energy, but also for, for staying connected to people, for recognizing what they need from you, for being able to assess in real time. Have I come in too soft? Have I come in too hard? Have I mm-hmm. said something that's landed badly, you know, we can only respond effectively when we're completely tuned into the other people that we're dealing with. So, and that's really just a matter of learning to train your attention. And one of the things that I use a lot and advise people a lot is to just start with your eyes. So kind of discipline you can learn is just to practice when you're interacting with someone else, using your eyes to observe them completely in a very clinical and curious mm-hmm. way, like what color eyes do they have and how is the light hitting their face and do they seem to be anxious and I wonder what's going on for them. Just learning your eyes to, or training your eyes to learn to pay close attention to how other people look is just a simple way of <clears throat> developing that discipline. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a habit to be externally focused as opposed to the constant ruminating about how we're doing, which is a very easy uh, habit to fall into as well. That's right. And you can catch yourself doing it. I mean, I've Mm -hmm. learned to recognize that anxiety or, you know, sense that I'm not fully present, just, you know, to shift my eyes back on to the other person and try to to take them in and it's it's um that's a very powerful technique yeah and very simple actually yeah i write in the book also about you know something else just to share with your readers or mm-hmm. your listeners for techniques you know one of the one of the interesting thing that i things that i've learned again from working with actors is about the power of your imagination and um in dealing with situations where you know we feel disempowered in some ways this happens for women a lot for example, you're walking into to a room where you know you're, you'll be the only woman there. Part of what makes us feel anxious and disempowered is the sense that we're alone and the mm-hmm. sense that we'll be scrutinized for being different. And you can very powerfully use your imagination to reinterpret those circumstances in a way that's more empowering. So one of the things that I've learned um, from actors and used in my own life is to Reimagine situations where you think you'll feel alone in ways that allow you to bring your supporters with you in your mind and in your heart and in your body. So I'll give you an example that I talk about in the book. You know, Oprah Winfrey uh, has talked often about, you know, how she's dealt with this situation of, of going into meetings where she's the only woman and the only person of color and and has been asked often how she deals with that. And what she says is that often before she goes into a situation like that, she will literally sometimes like go into a closet and shut the door and in her mind, call up all of the women and people of color who came before her, mm-hmm. who have gone into situations like this with less than she has, who've known that 
a better day was coming and some of them didn't live to see it. And she, she talks, about, she says, you know, I, I, I come as one, but I stand as 10,000. So she takes mm-hmm. inspiration from the Maya Angelou poem. But, but all of us can do this, which is to say, you know, you can go into a situation knowing that the people who love and support you are with you in spirit and that no matter what happens to you in that meeting, they will be there when you come out. And, you know, I, I know of executives who have described walking into a trial by fire and imagining that they were gathering all of their most fearsome relatives to fall in step behind them. And Wonderful. it just changes, yeah. you know, just changes, changes how you feel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and how you show up when you, when you mm-hmm. feel that you have people behind you, it's, it enables you to, to do the things you have to do in order to get the outcomes that you care about. So there are a lot of examples in the book of different ways of doing this, but but the one of the things I love about working with artists and thinking about acting as a way of approaching power is just recognizing the power of our imagination and to also realize that when we when we when we aren't aware that we're using our imagination, of course we are. You know, when when we're mm-hmm. worried about things going wrong, we're imagining yeah. Bad outcomes. <laughs> In great detail. <laughs> so, that's exactly right. And thinking about them over and over again, you can very easily replace those negative thoughts with positive ones by just, you know, just reminding yourself of the great outcomes you've had and how things could go well and the supporters that you know you have in the room. So it's uh, it's a very, very powerful tool. I was going to share one more, which, uh, you know, while we're on techniques, that I think is super important, which is that this is, is to some, some extent an obvious one maybe, but I don't think we think about it this way. So of course, when actors are trying to get in character, they take costumes and props very seriously and the rest of us should also do that. You know, I often mm-hmm. talk with executives about the shoes they wear, <laughs> the impact that that has on how authoritative they are and how authoritative they appear. So Mm -hmm. for example, um, a lot of women wear heels because it makes them feel more powerful. And I say that's fantastic. I would always advise women to make sure if you're wearing heels that you can stand uh, steadily without feeling like you're going to topple over. And confidently. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there are many famous men who were small who wore heels for the same reason. So I think Mm -hmm. that's fine. But something else I just want to mention that I've learned from people I interviewed for the book is that um, the sound that our shoes makes on the floor is also important. So I know um, political operatives, people who work in Washington in the government who have described wearing shoes that make a loud sound on the floor so that when they go to testify in Congress, people can hear them coming. And, um, wow. and I think these are all things that we can, that we can and should think about, you know, what are the, how are we, you know, what kinds of things, what kinds of choices are we making that make it easier for us to show up as a really authoritative person? Um, and what are the choices we make that get in our way? So costumes and props are, are very important, um, you know, clothes that 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 make the body more uh, square. Often, you know, mm-hmm. things that have um, structured shoulders are helpful for this. All of this, all of these types of uniforms convey authority, and they and they make us feel strong as well. 
Yeah. So again, that whole preparation of self in terms of how do we, how do we show up and where is our confidence and what do we draw on? But more specifically, how do we prime others for our authoritative self, even if it's the sound of our shoes? Yeah. Does it sound like someone who is showing up, who uh, who is there to exercise their authority confidently? How right. do we not use our, how should we? I mean, are there shoulds to this? When when you've seen, because a lot of the time people get nervous uh, and, and yeah. find power something that they want to avoid because they have observed uh, power being wielded or being corrupting in their lives. What, what do people need to tell themselves about those stories that often allow them or are the reason they decide to withdraw from their powerful self? Yeah. So I think this is very, this is such an important question and, and especially for women, I think, who really do struggle with this. It's important to recognize that, that when you are the person in charge, um, and this is true in a supporting role as well, using your power to take care of others is the most generous thing you can do. So when, you know, it's important, I think, again, to like zoom out a little bit and look at the realities of life in hierarchical contexts. One of the interesting and counterintuitive things about hierarchy is that although most of us value equality and it's a very important ideal, if you watch what humans do, we tend to gravitate toward hierarchical relationships and we tend to conspire to create hierarchies almost instantly in every situation and the reason that we do this is because the structure and the order that it provides is this gives everyone a sense of psychological security so you don't have to haggle over you know who's watching the time who's asking the questions who's answering the questions who's providing direction who's following up if you don't have to haggle about those things mm -hmm. you can focus very efficiently on getting work done and so whenever we're in a context where we're trying to work together as a team and we're trying to cooperate, the most generous thing the person in charge can do is to behave in a way that is authoritative. And mm -hmm. sometimes um, it just makes everyone else relax and feel like, yes. okay, she's got this, you know, she's got this. Um, there are a lot of different ways, you know, to think about it. Often it's the kind of natural go-to things of of being reassuring, of, you know, setting the stage so that everybody understands you're in charge and you're going to make sure we stick to an agenda. But I think the other important thing to recognize is that everyone worries in group contexts about bad actors stealing the show, interrupting, going off topic, speaking too much, mm -hmm. um, you know, undermining the group's collective cause and direction. And it's very, very important for the person in charge to shut that behavior down. Yep. This is part of what it means to protect the group and to protect the culture. And so it's really, you know, both, both the kindness, the generosity, the caring, the comfort, but also being willing to use force if necessary to protect the security of the group by disciplining people who are behaving badly in a way that makes makes it safe for others to behave in a cooperative way. Mm -hmm. It's the most generous thing we can do. And we've all been in those situations where, you know, it's absolutely, you know, unnerving to go into a group situation and feel like the person in charge isn't controlling the room. 
Yeah, it's very destabilizing, as you say. People don't have that sense of psychological safety. Right. And what tends to happen, I think it's important for all executives to realize this. I've learned this lesson the hard way. When we, as leaders, leave a power vacuum at the top, Mm. other people feel compelled to step into it. And Mm -hmm. when we have subordinates who are insubordinate often, it's because that's what they're doing. That's mm-hmm. exactly right. We haven't provided enough authority. You know, they're like, much of what we need to know as leaders, we learn from parenting. You know what I mean? It's like people, yep. the people who work for you need that reminder that you're in charge and they have their own role to play and they'll test the limits. But the more consistently and comfortably you can use your authority to remind people where the boundaries are the easier it is for them to to play their part um, as well. And that's a natural expectation of your leadership. I love that, Deborah. The most generous thing you can do is to behave authoritatively. Again, a wonderful reframing of those authority and power challenges that a lot of people and certainly a lot of women feel uh, ambivalent yeah. about exercising power. What, what advice would you have Any other advice you would have for my listeners about how they can be their best powerful leadership selves, Deborah? So here's what I guess I would say. Um, I think that one of the biggest fears that people encounter when thinking about how to behave um, in any role, really, or any situation is the the fear of showing weakness. And, you know, I was just talking about how important it is to know how to show up in a strong way. But I think it's very important for people to um, get more comfortable with their with their fear of showing weakness as well, and to um, realize they may have less to worry about than they think. So, so I think this gets a little bit to you know the idea that being willing to show others respect even when you don't have to, being willing to put others first. Um, even when you don't have to, being willing to show deference, to admit that we don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things are also powerful in the sense yes. that if as leaders, we can't show that we need help, the people who report to us don't have a way in. There's no way for them to connect to us. So so even mm-hmm. our weakness can be a strength in the sense that, you know, as a leader, we of course, you want to be competent. Of course, you want to be respected and admired, but you also need people in your corner. And if yeah. you can't tell the truth about where your weakness is, it's hard for people to figure out how to get in there. Interesting. <laughs> so, so it actually builds your credibility. Mm. Of course, it builds your credibility. And, you know, the most rewarding thing uh, for any subordinate is to be able to feel like you're solving your boss's problem for them. Yeah. Um, And if we can't give subordinates those opportunities, we don't, we can't build the kind of support that we need that will carry us Mm. through tough times and, and through our own mistakes. So, so I think it's a very important thing. You know, we started off talking about the importance of getting comfortable with our, with our power and authority and learning to be comfortable with our strengths. But I think the other side of it is to be less afraid of our weakness And to recognize that this is also part of the package, that for a leader and a person in power, you are only as strong as 
um, as your supporters, as, as your supporters support. And there's an interesting book out there for people who are who like this topic um, called Chimpanzee Politics about mm-hmm. um, how how animals negotiate hierarchy. And there's a great example from that book that I see happening in the in you know human organizations as well, which is that we often think of like the alpha person as the person who's holding all the cards. What you learn again when you watch groups and animals is that there are often it's often the people just below the person at the top yes that are responsible for that person's power actually so they're mm-hmm. the ones who elevate the people they want and mm-hmm. they protect those people from challenges and if they don't think the alpha is serving them well they'll find someone to challenge them and take them out and so um, you know, I, I just think it's very important to recognize how important the support of followers is when thinking mm-hmm. about our power. So we want to do everything we can to, to make them feel secure on the one hand, but also to, to give them ways of, of supporting us so that that job feels rewarding uh, and they're getting everything that they need. They get everything what they need and they're also clear about who's ultimately in authority. Mm. That's right. Deborah, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to share some of the nuggets that are in your book, Acting with Power, Why We Are More Powerful Than We Believe. It's been such a great pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for your interest and for having me. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.